Hi, and welcome back to AlderPod, the Alders Gate Cycle podcast. Today's episode is number 28, chapter 25 of the Alders Gate, Lost and Found. The last thing Brick wanted to do was garner her attention. So he'd gone into the makeshift infirmary when Mesmer was certain she'd fallen asleep. He'd tried to linger only as long as he needed, just to make sure that Lark was alright. From what he'd heard of the fight, it sounded like Cora had done something incredible. If the rumors were correct, she had gone in and removed a geared bullet from Lark's leg in the heat of the fight, without so much as a shrug. They were comparing her to healers of old but in hushed whispers. At least they had won the battle, and most of them still had their lives. Brick had been kept behind the lines, keeping Ander, Haley, and Jasper quiet with the help of a handful of other asps. It wasn't as if he'd had much of a role in the winning. Most of the oak had been run down into the valley, where they had converged with what was left of the Order of the Heart. Battered and bruised, the knights and pages were waiting for something. They had suffered heavy losses, and the Asp's victory had been momentous, but they all worried it had left them with very little. Brick understood nothing. He felt like a walking corpse. He could do nothing to help the Asp, a cruel joke considering he had only one hand, and had been charged with keeping an eye on Ander and the rest of the Oaks in the custody. Likely the remainder of their own order wanted them back. The fighting had been relentless since their escape from Salvia's house, and Brick was exhausted. He hated himself for admitting it, but Cora Gray was the last person he wanted to see now. It was much easier to go on in his new life with the dim acceptance that she was dead and never coming back. But there she was, staring at him, her eyes wide behind her spectacles. She'd found new clothes to wear that did an impressive job of showing her shape, much to his chagrin. Two weeks ago, if he'd run into her again, he'd have scooped her up in his arms and held her so tight as to never let her go. He would have promised to keep her safe and apologize for being such an idiot. It felt like a century had passed to him, and looking at her he could come up with nothing to say that would convey to her what he meant. He knew her well enough to know that she was three breaths from crying, too. Great, just what he needed. Is it really you? she asked, her voice just above a whisper. He stared blankly back, and she widened her eyes at him. It's me, Brick. Cora, she said, as if he wasn't aware. Damn, Gallon. He'd made Brick promise he'd be nightly about this. I know it's you, he said. Well, maybe not nightly, but a start. The chat went out of her. Her lips moved, but she didn't say anything. Then the tears started to come, and she started to walk away from him, folding her arms across her chest. He still couldn't think of anything to say, and so he just watched her waiting for the inevitable moment to surface when she was angry enough to let the torrent of anger out on him. But she didn't. She just kept walking through the double doors and outside, holding her hand across her eyes to shield her tears. "'Gallant and brave,' said Gowan, tisking at him. "'You need to go out to her. You need to speak to her. What are you thinking, Brickley?' "'Nothing,' said Brick. "'I'm thinking about nothing.' Gowan had been frustrated with him since he'd rescued him from the oak, and nothing he did allayed the man's overwhelming impression of general disappointment. We all go through shite, Brick. 
Ever think that talking to her might help you rather than hurt you more? She's alive. You ought to find some comfort in that. Comfort. Such a strange word to use, Brick thought. He hadn't had a lick of that in weeks, and seriously doubted that Cora could give him any. Chances were she'd been through a lot too, but nothing remotely close to the hells he'd endured. Oh, he'd heard. Professor told Gowan and Din all about the Nithings, a place that Brick still wasn't sure existed, but wouldn't outright call Professor a liar, and what had occurred during their flight from Vel. But more than anything, Brick knew that his secret was out. Even more, he knew that Lark and Cora had met. What was to say that Lark, as plotting as she always was, wasn't planning to tell Cora the first moment she woke up the truth about he and Denna? Eventually, Brick found Cora seated on the remnants of a marble bench that had once been at the center of Lady Vizima's impressive garden complex. Now it stood akimbo, one of the legs broken in half and the slab across sagging in the middle. At her feet were scattered the vestiges of a handful of flowers Brick had no name for, but recognized their beauty in the strange, hardy petals and the vivid purples and oranges. She saw him and tried to stand, but her boot caught one of the ragged edges of marble and she fell down to her knees. By now she was sobbing, and Brick felt all the more a brute. Very cautiously, he knelt down, then reached into his lapel for his handkerchief, the movement with his right hand still felt so unnatural, and he gave it to her. Here is what he said, though he wanted to voice his apologies. Cora took the handkerchief, but did not look at him. You can go, she said. Don't feel any obligation to one of the only survivors of Vel, a town that I thought you loved and respected enough to grant a fellow townsperson so much as a smile, or a word of acknowledgement. Cora, I... And don't try to blame it on the Order, because only a turn ago I was met by Mesmer Gimble, who was filled with so much joy to see me, and I him, I promise you, that we embraced one another like a brother and sister. She continued, speaking over him quicker than he could fire off thoughts. Yes, Cora was still Cora. A lot happened, he said, and she finally shot him up a look. Her eyes were red and puffy and dark beneath. He had never seen her look so tired. Oh, truly, she replied. From the things I've heard, it sounds as if the world might be ending. And yet here you are, practically being forced to greet me in any capacity. What happened to you? Cora, I'm not like... I'm not like what you think I am, he said, which was as close a proximity to what he meant to say as anything he'd managed so far. So, a great deal has happened. But you're still Brick Smithson, unless they give you a new name to go along with your tattoos. Oh, it's not that. Do you know how long I held out hope that you'd come find me? That you'd rescue me? I never stop, Cora. Don't. He was going to say something more, sharper and hurtful, but a shock of pain pulsed down his arm and then took up residence in the place where his hand used to be. He gasped and tried to hold back, but it was such an intense spasm that he cried out a little. Trying to play it off as less than the reality of it, he looked around the complex, blinking back tears. He could see Sir Gresham leading his horse to water. He felt the breeze move the hair off his forehead, and after he spent a moment tracing the outline of the distant mountain range, he was able to look back at Cora. "'You're in pain,' she said, stating it. One of her tears had gotten stuck between the wire and the glass of her specks, and it wobbled back and forth as she spoke. Concentrating on anything else helped Brick out of the pain. "'Sometimes,' he said, "'but it don't seem to be getting better.' Renman's had a look at it, but 
He says there's not to be done. It was cleanly done, and I'm lucky to be alive. So he says. How? She asked, and he shook his head. Don't want to talk about it right now, he said, and he didn't. He just had spent a day and a night in Anders' presence and could really do without the thought of him for a few. Cora straightened herself up a bit, brushing off the front of her vest. Well, it's good to see you again, Brick, for whatever for whatever it means, she said, and took a somewhat uneven curtsy. It's just not a good time for me, he replied, as lamely as ever. In spite of her unusually unkempt looks, she was still so endearing to look at, and as ever lovely. Her hair was tousled, tendrils of auburn curls falling in front of her face, and one errant lock trapped behind the side of her specks. He loved her. He always loved her. He just couldn't bear it. Well, perhaps when the world is a little more to your liking, you'll find that the time is right, she said sharply. But don't expect me to come running. Cora, please, just hear me out. There's things you don't understand. Things, things I don't understand, she said. Of course there are. There are thousands of things that boggle my mind daily. Like, for instance, how it is I can touch people and presumably heal them if I think hard enough about it. Or how Emery, my, the bard, how he can speak demons, she shouted. One of the horses wickered and Cora narrowed her eyes at Brick. So you'll forgive me if I don't jump at the opportunity to give you space, Brick, when you can't spare a moment to just be a decent human being. Brick wanted to kiss her and punch her at the same time, but that was nothing new. He was just too tired and feeling much too sorry for himself to say anything to counter her claims, as incorrect as they might have been. Then the thought occurred to him that he might find a way to circumvent the situation. Well, maybe you could look at my injury then, he said, thinking what a stupid definition for a missing appendage that was. I mean, I heard what you did with Lark, how you took out that bullet with nothing but your hands. It's special, Cora. No matter what Renman says, it's special what you can do. It doesn't work like that, she insisted. I can't just figure out what's wrong with you like a doctor can. I don't know what I'm doing. You can try, can't you? he asked, sweeter this time. He almost believed he wasn't as despicable. He just couldn't do it anymore. Couldn't look at her in the eyes. Couldn't lie to her. Not, not here in the open. Later. Later, just come to me in the infirmary in a turn or so. I need food and I need some air, she said. How could she take pity on him? The last thing he deserved was an ounce of mercy after embarrassing her like that. I've got to get back and check on Lark, he said, shortly. Kindness hurt. It burned in the center of his chest. And I need to find my friends, she said, turning away from him. She made it clear then that he was no longer among them. Sir Renman dragged Emery Roy into a very small room located somewhere facing east in Lady Vizina's expensive home. That it was such a small room was the least of its curiosities. There was a sink, a porcelain bowl of some sort, and it was painted so garishly with gold and silver that it took Emery a moment to realize exactly the purpose of the particular space. A bathroom, he said, as Renman directed him to sit on the toilet itself. Fitting for filth, said Renman, grimacing at Emery. He shut the door and shook his shoulders, as if he were preparing himself for a fist fight. It was a good enough description, and Emery didn't argue. Instead, he flexed his fingers and twisted slightly, 
but the cord at his wrist didn't budge in the least. Not that he should have ever considered wiggling out. He had never been tied up in such a manner, and even if he had, his skills of escape, especially without the aid of a figment, were significantly lacking. Now let's work out something here first. I've spoken with Robin Creekwise. She's the woman you know as Professor. And she's sworn to me, on the most precious of the gods, that you, somehow, either possessed the girl yourself and nearly burned her hands off, or sent something that possessed her and nearly burned her hands off. Now, you'll forgive me if I'm a little forward in this interrogation, but you best start explaining to me very fast, or I'll kill you outright. I don't give a feck for bardic orders, and I wouldn't hesitate to slit your throat if you did what I think you did. Emery wanted to laugh. Was this man really threatening him with death? Death would be welcome. Death would be escape. Death was what Emery had sought in the woods, but the ghastly night had tracked him down anyway. You can go ahead and kill me, Emery said, his voice catching as he said it. It sent him into a coughing fit, and he nearly gagged toward the end of it. Gods, he was so thirsty. Knowing he was sitting on water, filthy as it might be, was somehow the more ironic. Sounds like you've made up your mind about me anyway. Not in the least, said Redman, pulling up the dusty brown sleeves of his shirt and leaning forward with his hands on his knees. Believe it or not, I think you have something important to give us, to help us. You've got to help me see the whole picture. And if it's so bad that you want me to kill you, it leads me to believe there's hope yet, see? Something has frightened you so much, you're willing to die rather than tell the truth. Which leads me to believe it's quite worth extricating it. Pain. No, no. Emery could not take more pain. Death, yes. Death he could take willingly. But his tolerance to pain was already drawn taut as a guitar string. And he didn't have the strength to stand up against it. He tried one last time to call the figment to him, to see if she or it or whatever it was had any ideas. But everything had gone quiet. No. No, Emery said, and he would have put up a hand if he'd been able to. He slumped forward and looked at the ground. This is the last place I ever wanted to be. He hated the continent. Gods, he hated it. Back on more, people were so much more dignified. You'd never find such brutality. I can tell you what happened in Barnett, he said, feeling the fight drain out of him and fade away like a sustained chord. He'd had enough of music. But I can't promise it'll make sense. Or that you'll believe me. Try me. Redmond said, smirking a dry-lipped grin. And there, in the glorious water closet at Vizina Ranch, Emery Roy told the haggard Lee Redmond the truth, as far as he could remember. He told him about Bratner, about Sarah, about running away terrified. He tried to explain the cord as well as he could, but it defied definition. He told him about getting lost, and giving up, and then waking up after falling into the caverns above the nivings. Redmond listened the whole time without comment or expression, Emery might have been speaking to a statue for all he knew, and at one point he thought the man might have fallen asleep with his eyes open. But he nodded when Emery stopped speaking. Then comes the Nidings, said the knight. I was thrown in their dungeons, Emery said. That's when I met Cora, and that's... that's the first time that... Well, I know enough about summoners and speakers to gather that's what you think I am. But I summoned something, or spoke to something into being, unknowingly I'll have you know... "'used Cora to open up the mechanism in the dungeon. 
We all thought that it was her, myself included, until I had another visit. A visit? asked Redmond. The first time he expressed more than mild acknowledgement. He leaned very close, watching Emery as if he expected him to do something remarkable. It's hard to explain, and I have to tell you, during this whole thing, even I've been considering that I've just lost my mind altogether, said Emery. He wasn't afraid of the man, at least not as much as he had been when he found him in the wood. But he had a feeling he could sniff out a lie, and wanted as much truth in his story as he could stomach. And he had to admit, just giving words to the fear was relieving. Even if Cora would hate him for knowing the truth, he had been living in darkness so long that he was beginning to be used to it, to nursing his fears and anger alone. Renman was far from a friendly face, and certainly not one to be outright trusted, but there was something about him that endeared him to Henry, some commonality that he couldn't put his finger on. As best he could, Emery explained what had happened when the figment had visited him, and what he'd learned. It came out garbled in parts, mostly because the further he was from the experience, the muddier his memory was. Renman was rapt. He watched Emery with a hand on the side of his face, rubbing against the grain of the stubble growing there, and frowning deeper and deeper. Emery marveled at the man's face, how spotted and wrinkled it was, how he wore so many years of sun exposure. His lips were wrinkled to nothing but a line between his nose and mouth, and the freckles on his skin were so dense in spots his complexion was darker as a result. A name. Did you get a name? asked Redman. He did not, as Emery had thought he would, laugh or tease. No, apparently the description was clear enough to warrant more questions. No, not a name, just a, a presence. A shifting presence. It spoke to me for the first time since that visit when we were captured by the heart. I thought it was a reaction to fear that I was losing my mind. When it spoke to me, when we were waiting out in the stables, I didn't... I didn't expect it would actually do something. Redmond seemed bothered. He stood up straight and took a deep breath. It's strange that the figment, as you called it, wanted to use Cora, and that through the figment's actions, she was able to discover her own abilities. It's all happening very fast for those of us with such capabilities, and I don't blame you for thinking you were out of your mind. Thanks, I think, said Emery. And prior to, say, your visit to Barnett, had you ever experienced something like this? Voices? Visits? No, of course not. Sound of mind and body? You have to be to be a bard. The training they put us through. I spent ten years training, said Emery. He looked, it looked like Redman was counting. He squinted, just as his lower lids crinkled and nodded. Time's out about right. I reckon that's when it began to fall. It? The Aldersgate. The world's ending, boy. Didn't you know that? The what? Ending? Redman laughed his sandpaper chuckle. The only thing that's kept magic out for so long was the Aldersgate. It's said that the Great Collision, someone performed magic on a scale so large, so complete, that it prevented the world from ending. As a result, to heal the tear left by the incantation, the trees were set up. The world was saved, but magic was gone. So, now the world's ending, but magic is here? That's the gist of it. Why hasn't the world ended entirely, then? asked Emery, not sure he'd gotten all he should have out of Redmond's explanation. Aldersgate. He'd heard of it, but like most of the stories he knew, he'd never believed them. I'm trying to figure that out. It's 
a riddle I've been puzzling, said Redmond cautiously, as if not wanting to give away too much. But I have a theory about what happened to you, if you'll permit me. Uh, of course, said Emery. Redmond cracked his long fingers, pulling on each individually and twisting before continuing. The good news about my theory is that I don't think you're necessarily responsible for bringing the figment to be. I think it was someone else, in the Order of the Oak. A summoner. You know about them. Their magic was most powerful, but dangerous often. Summoners often turned power-hungry from the text I read, because they could command spirits without sound or sight. You could cut out a speaker's tongue or take out a seer's eyes, but, said Emery, they could communicate without even knowing it. That's the key word there, Bard. Communicate. And we've suspected that the oak had some means of communication beyond our imaginings. So something occurred in Barnett, though, and I believe the summoner unleashed something that he or she could not control, or perhaps even unknowingly, your figment. And the figment lingered until it found someone or something to cling to better. The cord, then. The cord called it, Emery said, and I heard it. It was waiting, and you, a highly trained musical bard with a precise fit, and it betrayed you, it manipulated you. There's no man more susceptible to magic's allure than the man who does not believe in it. Speakers, summoners, magic. Emery felt like he'd stepped blindly into one of Cora's romances, except that there was no closing the book on this and the consequences were far deadlier. If the Oak has a summoner, which I believe they do, then we're going to need your help, Emery. But you're going to have to convince your friends that you mean them no harm. How am I going to do that? Renman grinned, long and toothy. Speakers, do you remember what they used to do in times of old? Where they were placed? I don't... I don't remember. It was only one text I ever read, and... They're battle wizards, Emery. They stand in the middle of the storm and command the spirits of the earth and sky to obey, singing songs of destruction, death, victory, and honour. One speaker in our ranks, even a cowardly one with a penchant for lying, could save us all. Otherwise, we're all as stiff as corpses. He coughed and added, no pressure, of course. I don't, I can't. I, I mean, really, I can't, insisted Emery. Oh? We'll see about that. It was two mornings later when the white wave came up over the horizon, a great harbinger of death. Brick watched the massive airship turn as effortlessly as a bird and land. It was more than a mile away, and yet it still looked enormous. It had been two days without word, two days with a shred of hope that the oak were just regrouping and not, as was feared, awaiting reinforcements. But Renman had warned them all, and so it did not surprise Brick when Gowan called him to the roof to watch it land. They don't move so fast, Gowan said, leaning forward on the rail, but they carry a lot, at least that one. The Arabella and the Rose, they can move cover leagues in a day. But I imagine that's what took them so long. They wanted enough artillery, and hence the white wave. So that's it. We're going to stand and die, 
asked Brick. He had placed his right hand over his left, still self-conscious about it, and rubbed it slightly. Still hurt like hell's, now that the scabs were healing over. It itched, too. There's always miracles, said Gowan. He was stroking his mustache. But yes, we stand and fight, and some of us will die. But that's what you promised when you entered into our mysteries. But if the Order of the Asp ain't no more, then what's the point of it? asked Brick. Gowan nodded as if considering the validity of Brick's argument, but then said, It isn't about titles and commendations from a queen, Brick. If Renman's right, the world is plunging headfirst into darkness, and if we don't stand together, we will all fall. And if we stand together regardless, even if we are no longer in the queen's favor, she's long ignored the mysteries of our world, and I dare say they're catching up with her. Renman says they got magic too, Brick said, recalling Renman's speech from the night before. Cora had been there sitting next to the strange young man with black hair who was in charge of fixing and cleaning the guns from Lady Vizina's collection. They had all heard what Renman had said, but that didn't mean they believed it. They likely do, said Gowan, slowly, but they do not have what we have, a sense of camaraderie far and beyond the title of knight. What do you mean? Do you ever wonder why I left the Order of the Rose, Brick? Brick had wondered, of course, but as he was taught by his father, there were just some things one didn't ask someone in a higher station. I figured you'd tell me if you wanted to. Gowan watched the white wave a moment before saying, I fought alongside the best. I was a champion. I had everything I wanted. Renown, wealth, pleasure. But in spite of it, I was not a part of something great. The knights I fought with were power-hungry and self-serving, only wanting recognition from the queen. We were occasionally dispatched, but only on the highest missions, protecting diplomats. When I met Sally Din, she told me of an order dedicated to the people, an order that she had changed from a ramshackle bunch of scared boys into war-hardened warriors who kept the borders safe and helped the average farmer find his flocks. <sighs> but it seems so common, said Brick. I mean, what kind of value is in that? A great deal, said Gowan. It's a value to the soul, my boy. Value to the soul. It's been a long time since I agreed with the policies of our queen, and I fear her reign is coming to an end. Perhaps it's an end to an entire monarchy. I don't know. It may be that our lives are the price to pay for that, so others... Well, the hope, at least, is that others will live more freely. Gowan clapped Brick gently on the shoulders. You've endured more than half my men have in a fraction of the time, he said. I know it isn't easy on you. I see the pain you wear. But if we get through this, I promise, when you find joy again, it will be that much sweeter. And if this, this is the end, asked Brick, if this is where I die, then I hope you've made all the amends you need, Gowan said his voice almost too low to hear. I hope you have forged a way of peace between those you love and those you've lost. It seems to me the gods have been exceptionally kind to you, Brickley, by bringing your friends together here, in spite of horrifying odds. Friends. Cora and Mesmer, even Jem and Professor. They were alive, and yet he had done everything in his power to avoid them since they arrived. Because of his secret, because of what he knew, the guilt he had, knowing that if Lark wanted, she could tell them all at a moment's notice.
and his greatest fear would come to be that they could never love him back. Quiet. That's all Cora wanted. After a long day of tending to wounded knights and servants, and forcing herself not to think about Brick any more, something she most certainly had been unable to do, she escaped down into one of Aunt C's many gardens, this one a veritable bower of hazel and hawthorn bushes. There was a bench, right by a thatch of raspberries, and as the sun rose, Cora busied herself picking and eating them, crushing the soft, warm fruits on the top of her mouth. She had seen the white wave, too. Professor had told her what it meant. It was likely she would not see the next sunset. She thought of Denna, wherever she was, and prayed she was safe. At least if she were at Hartley, she would be protected. The Queen wanted the girls there, and it had been foolish of townspeople in Vell to think otherwise. When the aldermen returned, chances were there would be more political upheaval, her father would return to a town reduced to ashes, and both of his daughters gone. Would he be surprised? Had he known? Were they really looking for her, she wondered. She had seen her name in the papers, and that it was assumed at this point she had been abducted or was dead. Would people ever know the truth of it? Would they even believe half of it? Would there be anyone left to believe? If Renman was right, then it was the end of the world, or close to it. He was the only one who spoke as if they'd survive the next day, and he promised to go to the Aldersgate, to investigate with anyone that would follow. They were all outlaws now, whether or not they made it through. If it wasn't death, it would be incarceration, and then death. Except maybe in Cora's case. A fertile alder daughter was not to be wasted. She heard someone and turned. Who's there? It took a moment for her eyes to adjust, but she recognized the figure standing beside her. Hello, Ez, she said. You all right? asked the Sib. She almost laughed. She knew Haya didn't expect an affirmative response, but still, it was good to be asked. I'm contemplating a very short life, she said. Nineteen years, almost. I don't think I ever thought I'd end up as a character in a romance. Ez sat down next to her and brought with Hayon the smell of gun oil and some sort of citrus. It was no surprise when Hayon offered her a small fruit. You've got to peel it first, Hayon instructed. Take my word for it. She laughed. Ez made her feel so at ease. Would that Hayon was a man, and she could find comfort there, too. Using her thumbnail, she peeled away the rind and separated the segments inside. The smell was intoxicating. Though she had to spit out the seeds, it was still delicious. Thank you, she said, taking another slice. There's some raspberries just behind you, if you like. That's quite all right, said the Sib, looking up through the branches above their heads. The sun was rising fast. Hea smiled. I love stars. Hardly get to see them. Glad to now. Kind of wish it was night time again. You don't have to stay here, Cora said, gently as she could. This isn't your fight. Nesme would understand. Gowan knows, you know. Everyone thinks you're Jem's little brother, but no one would wonder. 
Ez was very close. He has dark eyes, wide and beautiful. Hea took Cora's hand gently, closing her fingers around Hea's own. She felt a shiver run through her as Hea did. How could she look at Ez and not see beauty? Gods. But from the first time she set eyes on Hayan, it was as if she'd never love another face again. And every day she'd grown to know Ez better, she had felt more and more of a connection between them. But how could that be? How could she love someone who could never make her whole? She had never been with a man before, and though Ez alluded to the fact that Sibs could feel certain pleasures, she knew they could not, strictly speaking, couple in such ways. And yet, and yet her attraction to Hayon was shockingly intense. With Brick, it had been more out of curiosity than out of true feeling, and her recent conversations with him had led her to believe it was indeed a good thing she had never let him in let into her more base desires. Brick was a confused man, that was for sure. She would have stayed with him, would have loved him. But he had changed so much, she doubted she would be able to again. Not that there would be time. I'm not going anywhere, Ez said. I couldn't. Cowardice isn't a trait that I like in people, let alone myself. I promised to make sure you got to safety, Cora, and that's still not fulfilled. But uh, I'm going to die, said Cora, the words bubbling in her throat with emotion as she spoke them. Or at least I'll be taken by the oath, and who knows what will befall you. Ez shrugged, casual as always. It was part of Han that was so endearing, his ability to be so free-spirited, even in the face of danger. If that's what the gods have ascribed for us, then who are we to question? How else can we escape it? I'm just glad for this moment, at least. I'm here with you. Hea was still holding her hand, and then Hea turned to her, reaching up to touch her hair. Her breath stilled, and she closed her eyes, willing her heart to slow but it would not comply. You are very beautiful, Cora Gray, Hea said, softly as the whisper of a butterfly wing. And sitting here with you is all I want in the world. Ez, managed Cora, shivering under Hea's touch. You can't mean that. Why not? A sib can't see beauty in a woman. Can't want to be close to her, Hea said. Hea's hand now moved from her hair to her cheek, soft and yet strong, smelling of fire and the forge. Cora's thoughts were becoming more and more narrow, and all she could see was Ez, that gentle, upturned mouth, the soft, yielding lips. Yes, in all the sorrow and all the despair, she wanted Ez completely. Of course, but... She tried to find words, but no sentences formed. I don't... What would... I mean, it isn't... I see you smile when you see me, Cora, Ez said, leaning even closer. Hea's breath mingled with hers and tickled the hair on her cheek. I know you see me differently, and you yourself likely don't understand. How could I? she asked, her eyes swimming with tears. Her view of Hayon distorted when she tried to blink, and she choked back the sob that threatened to destroy their quietude. How could I? When Hea kissed her, it was as if someone had summoned a bolt of lightning from the sky. Every nerve alighted, every vein pulsed with blood. Hea's lips were so gentle and yet wanting at the same time. The last kiss she'd had had been so rushed and interrupted, 
she never had time to contemplate the nuances. But here, in the silence of their own bower, their lips touched and teased, tongues and teeth and the ever-present warmth between the two of them. She lost herself to it. There was only Ez there, cradling her in Hea's arms, running Hea's hands through her hair, tangled though it was, and kissing her face, her neck. She wept and she laughed. It was as if she were flying far above the world in her own airship, and her stomach was doing loop-to-loops. It was the sound of gunshots that startled them out of the embrace, and then they pulled closer, as wrapping Hea's long arms around Cora's shoulders. What was that? she whispered. There was shouting and sounds of struggle from up above. Cora moved to go, but Ez pulled her back down. I could take you back to the Nithings, Hea said, Hea's expression indicating that Hea already knew the answer, but still asked. If, if you ask, there's an entrance not far from here. It would only take... Well, Cora said, stroking the side of Ez's face, and Hea closed his eyes against the touch, inhaling sharply. I stay here. Half of this mess is because of me, and if I hold back, well, what I can do? It's as bad as killing people myself. She took Hea's hand and grabbed Hea's fingers, kissing them softly. I understand, as said, rising with her. Let's go and see what this is all about. Time for a few post-podcast notes for episode number 28. Um, I wish I could bring a little bit more happiness into the narrative here, but unfortunately, um, as we're heading toward the end of the book, things are getting a bit more dire. So the, the white wave has appeared on the horizon, and all of our friends are hemmed in at Vizina Ranch, and pretty certainly facing a rather morbid turn of events. Um, the next chapter takes off right after this chapter, so um, I'm not going to talk too much about what happens because I'll be releasing that one very soon. But needless to say, it's definitely um, definitely a challenge from a writer's perspective anyway to do mean things to your characters. Um, sometimes it's hard to do things like take off their, <laughs> take off their hands, but um, it's also even more painful sometimes to watch relationships that don't work. And one of my points in writing this um, anyway, my own personal convictions were quite often romance comes off as very unrealistic, and I wanted Cora and Brick's relationship to be as difficult as possible. That um, if they ever do end up together, it's not because it was meant to be, but because they either decide to or fate brings them together. Um, but that it's a lot of work in the meantime, and a lot of it doesn't work out. So um, I think. One of my favorite little scenes here was definitely the one with Cora and Ez finally speaking to one another and uh, their little kissing section. This is not a kissing book, but um, <laughs> there's enough hints of romance anyway. I think that's important in the genre, and I think that you know, the love that people do have for each other certainly defines, um, defines relationships and can make us uh, more invested in the story as well, because most of us, if we're lucky enough anyway, do 
at least experience glimpses of such things. So we're heading into the final stretch and um, thank you so much for listening and following along. I really appreciate hearing from readers or listeners and um, I look forward to releasing the next one and hearing what you have to say. Alderpod is written, produced, and performed by Natanya Barron under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States License.